And so that's an unfair kind of understanding of what complementarians are and perhaps a misunderstanding that we think of this differing role and function as some type of inferiority of being between men and women. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the CFC, filling in for Dr. Keith Lee this week. Today, in our monthly roundtable discussion, Dr. Quinn will talk to Drs. Julia Higgins and Christy Thornton about complementarianism. But first thing, it's time for our segment called In the News. Dr. Quinn, this week we celebrated St. Patrick's Day. Now, just to be honest, for me, when I think of St. Patrick's Day, I think about being in elementary school, and I think about trying to remember to wear green so that I did not get pinched. And inevitably, uh, inevitably, I've always forgot to wear green, and I always got pinched. But aside from the green and the pinching, who was St. Patrick, and why in the world do we have a day on our calendar to remember him? Yeah, it's an important, important question. And first of all, before we jump into that, uh, listeners, uh, Nathaniel is the one always behind the scenes, making us sound halfway decent and putting together really good conversations. So Nathaniel, great to have you on the show today. Well, I appreciate that. And you guys make it easy. You guys make it easy. St. <laughs> Patrick, it's a fun conversation. Just the other day, I was uh, my daughter and I were driving through our neighborhood. We passed a sign that said, uh, Happy St. Patrick's Day. And she turns to me and says, Who is St. Patrick? Why should we care? It's the same kind of question that you've already asked. So we talked about it for a second, but then she asked the harder question of, But why are we celebrating it in America? And that was a little trickier. So let me, let me back up. Uh, St. Patrick, first of all, we, we think about him or associate him mostly with, with the Irish, but he's not Irish. He was actually British. Um, born sometime in the probably late fourth century, he dies probably mid-5th century. We don't know exactly what his dates are, but he's born into uh, most likely a, a little bit of an upper-crust British family, um, most likely southwest of England, and at 16 years of age is captured by Irish raiders who come in, take him along with probably a thousand or more other people back to Ireland and enslave him where he's there for about six years. Uh, and during that time, he gets quite serious about the faith. He, he, he finds great solace uh, in the Lord during that time. But at the same time, he undergoes pretty serious uh, just troubles and struggles, as you could imagine. Uh, he's, he's extremely cold. He almost freezes to death. He's very hungry as well. He escapes about six years into this and eventually is reunited with his family. But he chronicles this information, or at least he tells us this stuff in his autobiography known as The Confession, which is really the best uh, source of information that we have about St. Patrick and his work. Um, what he's best known for and the reason that we celebrate him is that um, after he had reunited with his family, come back to England, he, he experiences a vision or a dream where he sees these little Irish children asking him to come back and to, quote, walk among them. This is how he talks about it in his confession, to walk among them. And the point being to come back and to evangelize them, to share the gospel of Jesus. And he's inspired, especially by Matthew 28, 19, the go therefore and make disciples of all nations passage that, of course, is so dear to the heart of many Christians, but in particular at Southeastern, this is this is sort of our uh, our key verse to go. Um, that said, after he goes, within a few decades, there are thousands of people who come to faith in Christ, and it's really from that very ministry that much of the rest of Europe also is inspired towards, uh, to, for, or inspires other missionaries towards evangelizing and sharing the gospel. 
In fact, I, I came across an article a while back from the International Mission Board talking about St. Patrick, and it said this, after just a few decades and more than a thousand Irish professions of faith by Patrick's own reports, um, his influence didn't end with his converts, but the zeal and the scope of his mission served as a model for his newly planted Celtic churches, and their desire for and devotion to global gospel advance would lead to the evangelization of the British Isles, of Gaul, and of cent uh, Central Europe in the centuries that followed. Um, so this is, this is why we celebrate St. Patrick, is because of his great missionary work in Ireland. Now, there's also a couple of interesting myths. So the whole green thing, the shamrock thing, and snakes, right? Did you hear this, uh, Nathaniel, when you were in elementary school, that there's yeah, no snakes in yeah. Ireland? I'm, glad, I'm glad we don't emulate that tradition, though. I'm, I'm not a big snake fan. <laughs> I'm not either. Well, the thing is, these really are myths. In fact, the whole snake thing doesn't even come up, doesn't even pop up until about the 13th century. And it's kind of folklore that's wo woven into or written into uh, a sort of a historical fiction type story that that pops up in that sort of high Middle Ages era. Um, and then the the shamrock, the sort of um, three three leaf clover type thing that also is almost certainly myth that uh, that it was St. Patrick who used the three-leaf clover to explain the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, which of course would be a heresy that would have been, uh, would have already been defeated probably 125, 150 years before we even get to St. Patrick. Uh, but nonetheless, these are some things that are associated with him, that he ran out all the snakes uh, in Ireland and that he used the three-leaf clover to, um, to explain or to teach the Trinity. By the way, uh, most people even say that there were never snakes in Ireland in the first place. It was too, the waters were too cold. Couldn't have got there. Um, so however it's attributed to him, that's how it, that's how it is. Good news. Planning my trip to Ireland right now as we speak, <laughs> but uh, that's really cool. So St. Patrick, maybe not as much to do with snakes and shamrocks, but a lot to do with missions and evangelism, Yeah, uh, which is really, really cool. Yeah, exactly. And even how we celebrate this in America, it's interesting. St. Patrick's Day, at least the way that we think about it now, has been celebrated in the United States um, since the 1770s. And it was actually a group of Irishmen who kind of, who began to just uh, remember this, uh, especially March the 17th is supposedly the day that he died. That's why it's his feast day. Um, but they, they began to celebrate this in New York that has now become the great, the, the biggest St. Patrick's Day parade in the world. Uh, but it really wasn't celebrated all that much in Ireland until like the 60s or the 70s, 1960s or 70s. Um, and so now it's much more of a kind of worldwide tradition. Uh, but, it, but it really is. I mean, worth, worth remembering St. Patrick, not necessarily for snakes and shamrocks, but definitely for his commitment to missions and evangelism. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Quinn. One quick note before we jump into our conversation on complementarianism. You may hear some background noise in the upcoming conversation, i.e. sirens going by. But uh, ignore the background noise, listen to the roundtable discussion. It's well worth your time. Today in our monthly roundtable discussion, we're discussing a big long word that you may or may not be familiar with. We call it complementarianism, complementarianism. Joining us today are Dr. Julia Higgins, Assistant Professor of Ministry to Women and Associate Dean of Graduate Program Administration, and Dr. Christy Thornton, Associate Director of PhD Studies and Director of the THM Program. Those are long titles, ladies, but thank you both for joining us uh, this afternoon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. So let's start with this. So this long word that may not be familiar or even all that intuitive to our listeners just right off the bat, but what are we talking about? when we say the word complementarianism. Dr. Higgins, will you kick us off on that? 
Yeah, sure. So I guess the textbook explanation of complementarianism would be to go back and say, what did the people who originally coined the term, how did they define the word? And so there were really two elements there. It's the belief in the, the dignity, the value and worth of men and women, and also the, the idea uh, that men and women have been created with different roles or responsibilities in the home and in the church. Dr. Thornton, anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, as complementarianism developed too, we found that eventually there are kind of two different groups within complementarianism who are interpreting that second part. So the first part is this equal dignity, shared value, and being human that men and women have. And then the second part has to do with role and function. We have two different groups within complementarians at that point. So there's one group that would affirm that this role or function occurs in the whole of life, particularly male headship is something that's true in the whole of life. And then another group would say that no, male headship is only properly located in the home and the church, both of which would kind of broadly fall under the term complementarianism, but slightly different. So if we're, if we're thinking about this from a, from a biblical perspective, what key passages might you go to to kind of ground or explain complementarianism? A couple that immediately come to mind from the epistles, especially as we're thinking about the roles in the home and the church. I think one of the clearest passages for male headship in the home is Ephesians 5, uh, where Paul begins to talk about men leading their homes as Christ loves the church and women submitting to their husbands. And he does that through the interpretation of the Genesis narrative. So Paul then is giving an apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament in Genesis 1 and 2, concluding that as we read the Old Testament and God's created purposes, we read them in this particular way that there's male headship in the home. Um, and then you see this kind of parallel in maybe the pastoral epistles writing about so uh, like First Timothy 3, Titus 2, Titus 1, 2, 3, where you see Paul who's introducing this family of God. And in this family of God, the role of elder pastor is particular to men. And then that becomes a trajectory that you can see across the narrative of the Old Testament as well, that there aren't women serving in these ritual religious roles, whether that's the role of the priest in the Old Testament or the pastor, elder, overseer in the new. Yeah. And to build off of what Christy said, so she went to the epistles and what Paul was saying, and she mentioned Paul appeals to the Genesis account. And so I think those appeals of Paul to the Genesis account are helpful for us to see that he wasn't necessarily dealing with just a cultural thing that wasn't a timeless principle for us, but because he appeals to Genesis, uh, we see it as something that is for the church throughout all time. So for me, looking at complementarianism, rooting it in Genesis 1 through 3 is really helpful, uh, particularly looking at Genesis 1, where in verses 26 through 28, uh, God creates man and woman in his image and gives them both a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. Uh, and then we see an expansion of that in Genesis 2, where we see Adam is placed in the garden. Before Eve is even created, he's given the commands of uh, about not eating from the tree. And so Adam is naming the animals. And so there's this expansion of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, where we do see as complementarians, we hold to the idea that, that that's kind of the, the place where headship is first expressed in Adam's responsibility. Um, so you could get into ways you define headship, um, but building out of Genesis 1 through 3, I think, would be the main text to then 
locate the idea of headship and then woman as helper. Okay, so you guys mentioned Ephesians 5, then back to Genesis 1 through 3, as well as 1 Timothy 3 and other, other passages we think about the roles of men and women in church. Seems pretty straightforward, but I think we all know this, this can be a rather hot topic at times. Why does this tend to ebb and flow, and, and how does it tend to pop up kind of in our broader evangelical and even Baptist context? There are a few different kind of trajectories that we can think down. I think one, there are exegetical discussions where well-meaning Christians with commitments to the Bible are drawing different conclusions from key texts. I'm convictionally a complementarian. There are other groups of people, egalitarians, who would affirm equal being the same way that complementarians do, but differ from complementarians by not affirming this uh, role in the context of the home and the church, but they see an equality of role in uh, the context of the home and the church. And at that point, we're drawing different exegetical decisions from the text, what it means. But we're both reading the text. I'm going to do well by my egalitarian brothers and sisters that they're committed to the Bible and drawing a different set of conclusions with a different hermeneutical convictions. I don't find their arguments winsome. I'm convictionally a complementarian. Uh, But some of those are, man, what do we do with First Timothy in particular becomes one of the most kind of lively discussions in this, especially was in the 80s and 90s when this was kind of beginning to be the, the centerpiece of an evangelical conversation uh, of is this, is Paul making statements or even First Corinthians uh, like 11 and 14, is Paul just making statements about a particular cultural context or is Paul making statements that are generally true or universally true for all of the church? Or is he just addressing something that's gone wrong in the church in Ephesus for First Timothy, the church in Corinth uh, in First Corinthians? Whereas, I mean, Julia's already kind of pointed this out to us that um, he makes appeals in, in both actually to, to previous texts and particularly the creation narrative to anchor the argument that he's making. So it seems unlikely that he's making an argument from the creation narrative and applying it only to a context, but rather you'd make an argument from the creation narrative in order to apply it universally to God's purposes broadly, whether, you know, and then we have some differences in complementarianism there. So I think that's one of them as we're drawing different exegetical conclusions. And then the other is sometimes uh, complementarianism is either has been anchored with poor theological argumentation in some contexts. We can talk about that a little bit. Uh, and, and then also is misunderstood. So there are a group of people who hear complementarians talking about role and function and they hear being so that women are lesser in being because we have differing role and function, which is not what complementarians have, have ever really said, uh, certainly not in our confessional documents. And so that's an unfair kind of understanding of what complementarians are and perhaps a misunderstanding that we think of this differing role and function as some type of inferiority of being between men and women, which is not complementarianism. And then the next is sometimes we've made less than great theological arguments about complementarianism, particularly as it regards the Trinity, probably not the best way to anchor our complementarian arguments, but that has happened a few times. Uh, whereas I, I would prefer the exegetical arguments than the theological arguments about the relationship between the father and the son, because uh, that's not the same thing. So let me ask you about that, Chrissy, because so much of this seems to me to, to pivot around just really good, proper, how to interpret the Bible kind of principles. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned 
the roles, the way that we think about the roles of men and women, and even the ways that we have uh, positioned ourselves convictionally as complementarians, it's not because we're picking and choosing the, the areas of, for example, Paul's letters, where that's more of a social matter versus this is not a social matter, and we're kind of becoming the adjudicators of that. But more when Paul says something, for example, like women wearing head coverings, or greet one another with a holy kiss, or men shouldn't have long hair, these seem to be things that are more socially constructed and unique to that time and place or proper to that time and place. Although I recognize there are some traditions that still have all of those things in place. 100%. But, when it's, but when we talk about the roles of men and women, especially leadership in the church, he doesn't do something. He doesn't look around at sort of the horizontal social construct. Instead, he goes back to the creational design of the world. Is that right. fair? Yes, I, I think absolutely is, is how I'd read it. Practically then, what does this mean for everyday Christians? And here's where it seems to me complementarianism as a conviction and complementarianism as an everyday manner of life can, can also get really quite messy. So when it comes to everyday, how do we live this out without being patriarchal on one side or passive on the other? I'm thinking about this as a man. How, how do we do these things well? How do I honor my wife well? How do I honor women in my church well? How do I honor women in the workplace well? Uh, what does this look like practically? I think that's a great question because even back to maybe the, the ebb and flow of the discussion, the ebb and flow of the discussion might um, be because there are people who might claim the label of complementarian and yet they apply it differently than what we would see in the scriptures. And so they would be maybe having a stated belief, but their actual belief and practice is inconsistent with what complementarianism is. Um, and so we have to go back and help others as we lead in the church, help them to understand what headship really is and what how that is fleshed out. And so if at any point uh, women feel marginalized or abused or cast to the side and that that men are uh, somehow uh, being put forth uh, over w- women, then we are misapplying uh, maybe a belief of complementarianism is that's not consistent with what it teaches. Because we mentioned Genesis 1 a few minutes ago, back to the concept that we both men and women are created in the image of God and worthy of value, dignity, and worth. Uh, and both were given the command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And so we've both been given um, a, a regency there that we represent the Lord as vice regents on the earth to go forth and, and have dominion and partnership. And so any idea or view of, of manhood that would subjugate women would be inconsistent with complementarianism as we see in the scriptures. Yeah. And I think I would add that, you know, complementarianism was never intended to be an anthropology, right? So it is a piece of what it means to be human. And so I think one of the things to bear in mind as we think about living this out is that we're really only talking about one piece of the whole of what it means to be human and making sure that we're kind of thinking through the big pieces and not trying to make it an entire anthropology because it's not addressing all of humanity. It's addressing these particular functions and roles in the home of the church, which aren't even all of the ways that men and women interact. So marriage is one particular relationship between men and women, but it isn't the only way that men and women relate. I mean, that's a farce, right? To think that this is the only way. 
And so if we think of and locate that biblically, so we've been talking a lot about the creation narrative, which is right and proper. But if we look at to the end as well, like where does the story end on the relationship between men and women? We're not given a marriage, right? So there's no marriage doesn't exist in the end. So what's the final relationship between men and women? Well, it's not husband and wife, it's brother and sister. And so when we start locating complementarianism and this role and function in the home and the church in the light of God's intended purposes to the end, it begins to uh, bring balance in everything that we're doing. So we don't want to make complementarian celebrate it where it's true and right and enjoy it and also locate it in the in a broader context of what it means to be human and not, not try to turn either complementarianism or egalitarianism into a, a full anthropology because that's never what they were intended to be. Okay, so when it comes to further the, some of the practical application of complementarianism, this is where people really get sideways with each other. Even, even complementarians themselves begin to kind of segment the party a bit in, in multiple categories. So I'm, I'm not going to give a, a bunch of different examples and say, okay, right, wrong, that kind of thing. But I do want to add, let me, let me just sort of throw out a few examples, and I'm not asking you to give right and wrong. I want to ask you to, to help us, how do we think through these things? So things like Sunday school teacher. Uh, this, this is a classification that, that doesn't exist in the New Testament, right? But we have to take some principles of leadership and what, what the New Testament tells us about male-female roles in the church. Um, what about small group leader? Same kind of thing. There's not really that classification or uh, youth minister or senior adult leader or music minister, these kinds of things. So when it comes to, in your view, applying a consistent and, and faithful complementarianism, how do we think through these categories that are not necessarily, they, they weren't categories that existed for New Testament Christians, and yet they're in almost all of our churches today. So my playful answer to this is always, I mean, it sounds like a pastoral question. I'm going to tap out at this point. Uh, that's the most complimentary answer I can get. No, I'm just playing. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a pastor. Dims the rules. Um, but <laughs> but anyway, I'll give a ser serious answer to go along with my joke. Uh, but in, in all sincerity, there is something about these particular contextual decisions being made by pastors for particular local churches. So I'm always a little bit hesitant to make statements about what individual local churches in particular contexts with specific pastoral leadership that's God ordained for that congregation, what they should and should not do. That being said, I'm happy to think out loud about some basic principles to guide the idea. As I read the text of the scripture in reference to male headship in the church, it seems to be a headship of office. There's a role associated with what pastors are and what they do. So as you start thinking about what men and women should or should not do in the context of the church, for my primary question is always, what is a pastor and what does a pastor do at this church? And let that begin to designate what men and women can't do, should or should not do in this context. So for Sunday school, is this a pastoral role? Are only pastors, people who have the role of pastor, elder, or overseer teaching in Sunday school? Do you have men who are not serving in the office of pastor, elder, or overseer doing this ministry in the church? Okay, if you have men that are not in that office who are doing that work, you have to come up with some justification for why women should not also be doing that ministry 
as I read the text, because it seems that the text indicates that the office of pastor and its ministry is given to men. Man, think really well about what what is pastoral ministry at your local church and let that begin to designate for you what is healthy for women to be participating in in that context, because the role is pastor um, as I read the text. Right. I would affirm what Christy is saying completely. Um, and I would add to that um, an understanding of maybe what John Frame calls the general teaching office versus maybe like a pastoral teaching office and the understanding that every member in the church has been given a spiritual gift. And some of those gifts are speaking gifts, proclamation gifts, teaching gifts. And so women have been given, um, first of all, the command by Christ to go and speak the gospel, proclaim the gospel, teach the gospel to the lost, um, and to make, uh, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So I would want to maybe ask the question of what can women not be doing, but what should they be doing to help the church uh, as they are indispensable in, in the life of the church, and especially in displaying their, their gifts, if there are women who have been given the gift of teaching, which we know there are. And so I would push it back to the local church and that particular church, like Christy is saying, and have the pastors and elders consider in what ways, what avenues are we uh, providing for those women who have been given gifts of teaching? What are the ways that they express those gifts and serve the body? Um, and so that is, I think, a, a better way to frame the question of how are we incorporating these women who have been gifted to serve our church body? I love the way you, you started that out, uh, Dr. Higgins, by let's not have the conversation beginning with um, closing it down, what women can't do, but instead let's open the conversation up. And our own president, Dr. Aiken, has done this for years, uh, where he says, look, I think there's one clear clear office, uh, Dr. Thornton, to your point, one clear office in scripture that is for men only. Beyond that, we can have a really open and honest conversation. Um, yeah. We do need to be wise and be discerning about what the previous and, and legacy practices are at any given location, but there's, there's really one exception and beyond that, let's let's have a very honest and open conversation and give men and women, uh, let's let's help them sort out their gifts and give them as much opportunity as possible to flex those gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Yeah. And in a very real way, I am personally a product of that leadership at Southeastern. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the reason that I do what I do is largely because Dr. Aiken and other members uh, of the cabinet here at Southeastern have led us to think that way. That's how I ended up here. So, I mean, I think that's true, and I'm very grateful for his leadership in that in a very personal way. So, I can't let you guys get away from here without talking about a book called The Whole Woman, Ministering to Her Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength, uh, which features both of you as contributors. Dr. Higgins, will you talk to us just briefly about what that, what that book is about and why our listeners might want to purchase that volume? So The Whole Woman, it's a book that really just uh, was an idea that Kristen Kellen, who's also a faculty member here, she and I were sitting on the quad one day having lunch, and we started talking about the great commandment of loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then discipling others to do the same. And we began to think about what would it look like to write a book that is divided into those four categories of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and helping women know how to help other women to do the same. So we have this book, The Whole Woman, that's divided into those four parts. And 
as she and I sat and talked about that, we also started thinking about our friends here on campus that are involved at Southeastern some way. And all of our friends, all these women are, are so uh, competent and gifted in their particular areas. And so we, we began to think of people like Christy and others on campus that could write a chapter uh, in the book, like Christy's chapter is on loving God with your mind and, and theology. Uh, so we, we have that book available and it's, it's really on loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and helping others to do the same. Christy, anything to add to that? No, I wrote a chapter on theology. So my academic background is systematic theology. So it's kind of an introduction to what theology is and how it may not be what you think it is, uh, <laughs> that theology is, is a whole of life kind of thing. And there's a, a basic introduction to Trinitarian theology in there, but don't worry, it's not scary. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I just feel like every time we talk about the Trinity, people freak out. I think there's literally a footnote that says, please don't freak out. It's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ladies, thank you both for your time today. I want to ask you one final question. If there, were, if there was one sort of parting word that you would want any listener to remember with respect to what we mean and why we talk about complementarianism, what might be a parting word? Um, I think a parting word, you know, in our culture today, it, gender can be such a, a difficult discussion and maybe in the, the world apart from the church, it's a difficult discussion on what does it even mean to be man and woman? And I think the Bible provides those answers for us and provides a, a good way for relationship between men and women. And so it is something that is good and brings glory to God is the way he designed us and created us to interact with one another so that uh, we flourish and we bring about the flourishing of others in the kingdom. Yeah. And I would say it is good and right that according to God's good purposes and his like gospel centered expansion around the world. So God's mission that men and women have particular roles in the home and the church. It is also true and God's good purposes that the ending relationship is neither husband or wife or mothers or fathers, but brothers and sisters. And so holding our understanding of marriage, husbands and wives in the church, mothers and fathers in the light of, in the end, we're all brothers and sisters and, and letting that be a guiding uh, point for us to understand God's good purposes in the world for humanity. Uh, that's more than role and function, and, but not less than. Well, thank you both again for your time. And I can't wait for, we're going to have to have both of you back on in, I don't know, about seven months or so, knowing both of you being such serious college football fans. I think we need to be back on together in just a few months, talking not about complementarianism, but, but talking about college football. So hopefully we can do that together soon. And until no then, a big roll, big roll tied to both of you. War Eagle. Go Dogs. War Eagle. Thank you for having us. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu.
Now it's time for our segment, Ask the Profs. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions. And Dr. Keithley, I'm glad to throw this one your way. This comes from a student here at Southeastern, and the question goes like this. Is Reformed theology and Calvinism the same thing? Technically, no. But they are often used as synonyms, and, and there's, there's a good reason for it. Technically, Calvinism would be a, uh, a subset of Reformed theology. The Reformation, of course, happened in the 16th century, uh, and you have the great reformers of Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. And so this is the Reformation. Before too long, uh, it, it kind of divided into subgroups, uh, Lutheranism, and then you have uh, those who are in Switzerland. And among the, the Swiss, uh, there was a, a variety of, of theological leaders, of which Calvin was perhaps the best known and, and the leader. Of course, he's the one who wrote the Institutes, and the Institutes become pretty much the benchmark for, in terms of, of reform theology, and so therefore this is why many times they're, they're thought of as synonyms. Reform theology is broader, though. It's talking about um, uh, the, the uh, ecclesiology, uh, a, a vision of life and work, of, of political government. Uh, there are a number of contributors. There's, there's uh, Bootser and, and Bollinger and, and a number. But, and again, you have um, not only in Switzerland, but then you have in, in, in the Netherlands and then in England and Scotland. So you have the Dutch Reformed and the Westminster Confessions. So... Um, Reform theology is is there's there's a lot of streams uh, of thought uh, into reform theology. Calvinism is typically associated with the writings, particularly of 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 John Calvin, and then it ends up being narrowed in a way that I don't think is really fair to John Calvin. And now we're thinking of the five points, and this is the result of the controversy between the Arminians at the Synod of Dort, or a remonstrance, and then, and then the Calvinist reply at the Synod of Dort. And the remonstrance had five complaints, and so the Synod of Dort gave five responses, and these have come, become known as the five points of Calvinism. Calvin's theology was much broader than that, and so it's not really fair to him to have it narrowed down to those five points. And I'm not at all sure that Calvin would have affirmed each of the five points the way that it is presented uh, today. I'm particularly thinking about uh, the, the whole discussion on the, the extent or the intent of the atonement. Um, so, uh, Reformed theology is a broad stream of, of Protestant theology that results from the Reformation Calvinism is typically understood to be a subset of that broader stream. Is it fair to say, because th this word reformed, it means, it seems to mean something different in the 16th century than it does in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. So is it fair to say not all of the reformers are reformed? <laughs> is, that a, is that a fair way to kind of get after the distinctions? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there, and that's a good point that you're making, is that each generation, subsequent generation, they had different issues to deal with, and they dealt with different theological questions. Uh, there were different emphases, um, and so uh, there's a broad stream that flows in history there, and Calvin 
had such a significant role to play. Um, I'm known as, as not being a Calvinist, but I'll have to say, I love reading the Institutes. Uh, they're, they're, they're a blessing to me. Even whenever I come across a paragraph or two that I disagree with him about, I really do think that John Calvin had a pastor's heart. Mm, yeah. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please do give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.